Hey, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 12, 43 through 49. We're going to talk about two subjects today. I, try to, I always try to come up with a, with a topic and that sort of thing for each talk. Can't do it with this one. There's two topics. There's going to be unclean spirits, and God wants you in his family. So if you would, stand for reading of the word of God. We honor God by standing when we read his word. Starting in verse 43, when an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes it with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this, this wicked generation. While he was still talking to the multitudes, behold, his mother and brothers stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. But he answered and said to the one who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand toward his disciples and said, here are my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. This is the word of God. Thank you, Father, for this time that you've given us to study your word. Your word is truly a lamp unto our feet, a light unto our path. It is your word that directs our lives. We don't just live any way that we want, but according to your precepts and your principles as expressed in your word. We are servants of the Most High God, and we commit ourselves to you today. We commit our hearts and minds to you. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you open our hearts, our spirits, that we'll be just filled with you, and we'll hear what you want us to hear during these next few moments. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, you know what the theme of Matthew is. Jesus is the promised king, and we say it every week, the king is coming, the king is coming. Praise God. Hopefully, he's coming for you to take you into his kingdom. Now, last time we talked about a heart check, a heart check, and a heart check is, remember, your heart is really your soul, your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, that sort of thing. Your soul, it's your mind, your will. When you were born again, your soul was still in a corrupted state. You're in a process of transforming your soul by the renewing of your mind. That's what Romans 12, 2 is all about, transformation. We will struggle with our soulish nature until we are out of here, but we can make improvements as we're being conformed to the likeness of Christ. We can act less like old us and more like new us. Now, you won't get this thing perfect while you're here. It's a process of change. You realize that, hopefully. Your perfected time will be when you're glorified in the perfected state, glorification. Now, I have the, a picture here. Now, this is a more colorful picture of the trifold nature of man. And the reason I'm going through this is because I think it is exceedingly important that we have an idea of what actually happens when you're saved and as you go through your life being transformed. So these, this comes from 1 Thessalonians 5.23 and Hebrews 4.12. Talks about the threefold nature of man. You are composed of body, soul, and spirit. As you know, we've been through this many times. You know that you're born dead in your trespasses and sins. You have no life until you say yes to the Lord Jesus Christ. And you are born again of the spirit. The spirit of God takes up residence within you. And you are saved. 
That is the beginning of your journey, but it doesn't stop there. Your soul, your thoughts, feelings, emotions, this guy has imaginations, conscience, memory, reason, intellect, that sort of thing. This has to be transformed. You are born again in the family of God, and you are come into the family with strongholds and past histories that must be dealt with, must be torn down. We carry out the dictates of our soul in our body. And again, this will not be all yellow until we are in the glorified state, when we are totally perfected. So with that, we also learned last time that Jesus taught us that our tongue reveals our hearts. Now, doesn't that just floor you? Because how many times is your tongue absolutely perfect? My, and we've been through that. Jesus said, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. In verse 35, last time, we talked about an evil tongue and a good tongue. Remember, we had the picture of the snake, the viper, and how easily our tongue can strike out at somebody. And whenever our tongue strikes out at somebody else, it is meant to hurt somebody else, but inevitably, we end up being hurt also. It is a lose-lose proposition when you strike like a viper. Now, last week, I was asked after church about righteous anger. Is it okay to have righteous anger? And I think yes is the answer to the questions because it says, Scripture says, there is such a thing as righteous anger. Ephesians 4.26 says this, be angry and do not sin. So that gives you license to have anger when you're dealing with sinful situations and the cause of sin and the results of sin. There's a natural inclination for us to be discouraged and, 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 and have an emotion of anger or you know, just, just disgust with that sort of thing. But five verses later in verse 31, it says, let all bitterness, wrath, and anger be put away from you with all malice. Put the anger away. So in one verse, it says, be angry and do not sin. And the other verse, it says, take anger away. Well, what's the problem here? What is the deal? Well, there's two kinds of anger. There's a righteous anger and there's an unrighteous anger. There's an appropriate anger and there's an inappropriate anger. The anger, which is a manifestation of our old nature, our flesh, is inappropriate. It's meant to hurt. It's meant to destroy. It's meant to strike out. But the anger that is a manifestation of God's righteousness being in you and dealing with sin in your culture, that is righteous anger. That is righteous anger. There's a time, folks, for evil to be confronted. We cannot be passive in our culture. There is a time for evil to be confronted. And our culture doesn't like it when we stand for the truth and, and address the anger. Remember, Jesus on two occasions got really ticked off. Remember what it was? Casting the, casting the money changers out. I mean, there was whips and turned over tables. There's a lot of action going on there. A lot of action. Our culture wants true believers to be silent, disengaged, in a corner, and useless. Now, what the culture does not understand is that Jesus told us to be salt and light. And you know what salt is? Salt is a little bit bitter. Salt is a little bit irritating. Salt can be flavoring. Salt can be fertilizer. And we enlighten wherever you go with the gospel, wherever you go as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ, you are displacing the darkness, displacing the darkness, displacing the darkness. Wherever you go, you, you drop truth bombs on people to dispel the lies. 
Again, our culture wants us to be silent. We cannot. Now, you, as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, are being transformed in the likeness of Christ, and the greater your transformation is, the saltier you will be in the culture. If you do not participate in the transformation process, that's sanctification, phase two of salvation. If you do not participate in that, you will end up blending with the culture and you won't be salt and light at all. You're just going to be that murky in-between of no value, useless. So being transformed is exceedingly important. Being filled with the Holy Spirit is exceedingly important. So when we, we will know when to speak and we'll know when to be silent. We must have wisdom in addressing the situations that we come in contact with. So this week, we're going to be talking about unclean spirits, and God wants you in his family. Unclean spirits, and God wants you in his family. Starting in verse 43 through 45. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places seeking rest and finds none. Then he says, I will return to my house. Notice the ownership there. My house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it empty, swept, and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits, more wicked than himself. And they enter and dwell there. The last state of the man is worse than the first. So shall it be with this wicked generation who has rejected Jesus blaspheme the Holy Spirit. This is speaking to the nation of Israel. Their situation is going to be worse because they've rejected Jesus, worse than it was before. Their house has been swept clean, and it's going to be worse. Now, what did Jesus do as the Messiah? He entered into Satan's domain, and he brought calm out of the chaos. He cast demons out of demon-possessed people. He healed the sick. He healed the blind and the deaf. He entered into the chaos of this life. He did signs and wonders, and he did it over and over and over, things that only Messiah could do, and yet the nation stayed neutral with Jesus. They didn't quite embrace him as the Messiah. They followed him for what is the next thing that Jesus is going to do. Oh, he makes water into wine. Let's keep following this dude. He walked on water. He fed the 5,000. He heals these people. Let's, it's, like, it's like you're following some, some rock band someplace. They were neutral. They did not continue to seek him as the, as the Messiah. They ultimately end up rejecting him. Now, with that, I want you to think about something. No human being can remain neutral about Jesus. And he makes it very clear in verse 30. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. There is no neutral ground. And the question you have to ask yourself is, am I a fan of Jesus or am I a follower of Jesus? Am I out there, go get him, Jesus, while I don't do anything and just live my life any way that I want, or am I a follower of the Most High God? Am I a cheerleader of Jesus or am I a doulos, a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I a half-in Christian, which, by the way, dots our country? Half-in Christian, little toe-in Christianity. You know, you, you claim the name Christian, but you have nothing in your life to give evidence to it. Toe-in Christianity, very common in America. You can't be a toe-in Christian in Iran. You can't be toe-in in China or Russia. 
You can't be toe-in in many places in this world. But in America, you can kind of walk that little line between, I think I'll be a Christian, but I think I'll live in the world. No, no, no. Paul describes the American people today, the American church today. Watch what he says in Titus 1.16. Now, this is in context, folks. This isn't something taken out, out of context. Listen to what he says. They profess to know God. You know what that means? Profess to have a relationship with God, but by their works they deny him being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. You know what that word disqualified is? It's adokimos. Adokimos, not genuine, not real, phony baloney. You might have Christianese in your language, but you don't have it in your heart. Big difference. The neutral nation eventually rejected Jesus Messiah. They rejected their only lifeline. And folks, if you remain neutral with Jesus, the tendency is for the culture to suck you up like a vacuum cleaner, and you will end up more than likely rejecting the master. That's the tragedy of it all. Now, what happens here is Jesus is giving the story about the demon's house. The demon's house was a person, and he uses the term again, my house. Notice the hubris of this demon. It's my house. I own that house. And he left, he left the person. It doesn't say why he left the person, but he left the person. Then he returns and finds the place empty. There's no life change. He finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And you might as well just put up a big O sign outside of your life, ready for occupancy. Ready for occupancy. Just come and fill this. And people fill it with all kinds of false religions and false ways of life. Come and fill this up. This, you cannot be neutral with Jesus. They rejected him. They said he cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub, Satan himself. They rejected him. This was the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. They go from neutral to rejecting. That's usually the trajectory of humanity. You cannot be neutral with Jesus. Now, think about the demonic realm that he's talking about here. Jesus' story gives us some insight into the demonic realm, which I think we need to learn from. Now, number one is demon spirits like dry places. Now, I don't know what dry places are. If you get around the sea of uh, the Dead Sea, it's dry. And we know that Moab and Edom will be occupied by demons in the, in the millennial reign of Christ. So maybe that's what they're talking about. Kindred demon spirits are there. That sort of thing. No one really knows. There's umpteen different reasons, but dry places. But one thing we do know is this. Demon spirits like human bodies. They like something to, to possess, to cause chaos. Now, Hear this, Jesus believed in demon possession, and folks, so should we. It is a real thing that can happen to somebody. Now, I want to give you a caution here before we go any farther. A caution. There is not a demon of everything. There's not a demon of cupcakes. There's not a demon of cookies. There's not a demon of drugs, alcohol. Maybe they're associated with, those, with all of those things. Gossip, you know, whatever we have. that we, we always say, the devil made me do it. Well, the devil didn't make you do it. He can't make you do anything. 
Much comes from our depraved human hearts. Now, you watch what Jesus says. He gives very strong clarification on this. He's not blaming demons at all for the depravity of fallen human mankind. In Mark 7, 20 and 23, he says this, What comes out of a person is what makes him unclean. For it is from within, within men's hearts, their soul comes evil thoughts. Listen to this list. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these things come from within and make a man unclean. Folks, this is a bird's eye view of the corrupt humanity, the depravity of who we are. And then people have the arrogance to say, I'm a good person. I mean, let's get real. None of us are good people. There's none righteous, no, not one. There's none good. There's none that seeks it. That's what the Bible says, and that's what the truth is. If people could look at your mind and what you think about, that would be a telltale sign, wouldn't it? I mean, I'm so thankful that nobody can see my mind, and so are you. The depravity of humanity knows no bounds. Now, there has to be a balance here. C.S. Lewis helps us with this. I've mentioned this before, so it'll be redundant for some of you, but new to some. Two errors people make with demons. Too much emphasis on the demon, the demon of everything. And this other one is becoming more and more popular today. They don't believe in the devil at all. Demons are equally pleased with both. The believer, folks, is subject to attack in three areas, and you know what those are, the triune enemy of humanity, the world, the flesh, and the devil. I'll start out with the devil. It means diabolos, the accuser of the brethren. And then Satan, the Satan in the Greek, he's the adversary. He was the anointed cherub. He got kicked out of the mountain of God in Ezekiel 28:16 because of his hubris, wanted to be like God. He's the adversary of God. And by the way, he's the adversary of all in relationship with God. That would be the church and that would be Israel. Two people. There are two entities that God claims possession of. The church is called the bride of Christ. Israel is called the wife of Jehovah. They will be brought into the fold. They rejected Jesus at this point. But they will be brought into the fold at the end of the tribulation when finally they will believe and, and realize that Jesus is the Messiah. The, the second problem that we face is the world. And when I say the world, it's the world system that is controlled by the ruler of this world, who Jesus said at least two or three times was Satan. The ruler of this world is controlled by Satan. Now, when you think about this world system, Immediately think of governments, education, media, newspapers, arts, entertainment, all of those types of areas. Those are all controlled by demonic elements. There are some Christian inputs into these areas, but by and large are controlled by the ruler of this world. Now, what you need to remember and what you must know is that Christians are the restrainer. You are the Holy Spirit-filled church of the living God, the true church. I'm not talking about the phony church that's in most of our country and most of the world today, or a lot of the world today. The Holy Spirit-filled church is the restrainer. Seth, 2 Thessalonians 2.7, that the restrainer 
will restrain until he is taken out, and then the Antichrist can have his way. Can't have his way until the restrainer or the church is taken out of the way. So you are the restrainer. Now, do you have, does that help you to understand why the world system doesn't like you? Because you are restraining evil in this world. They want you out of the way. And your third problem, your third enemy is the flesh. Now, you know that as a result of the fall of man from his high position with God to sin, separation from God, came the flesh. Our flesh is described as this, our fallen nature that is prone to evil, attracted like a magnet to evil. You don't have to teach somebody to, to like the stuff of this world. You just naturally like it. You naturally like the sin stuff in this world. At salvation, our spirit was given life. But folks, our flesh remains alive and well on planet Earth. Now, what are we to do with our flesh? You Bible students know what to do with your flesh. You must crucify it. Put it to death. How do you put it to death? Those are easy words to use, aren't they? You put it to death by this. God has given you something that no one else has in this world. That is the Holy Spirit. That you can make faith choices instead of flesh choices. You can say no to your flesh. Now putting the flesh to death is not just a one time thing. That's over and over. Get down, get down, get down, get down, get down. It's like the dog jumping up on you. Get down, get down. That's the flesh. Faith or flesh. Now hear this. The one you feed will be the one that rules and has dominion over your life. Look, you're living in a flesh smorgasbord right now. I mean, you don't have to think about it. It's just coming at you left and right. But to feed your spirit, that takes a discipline. That takes you breaking away from the flesh, breaking away from the world. That takes you making time for God. That is not as easy as feeding the flesh. The flesh is natural. The flesh is natural. Now, I want you to think about something. I've had this picture up multiple, multiple times in our teachings, but I think it is so profound. Number one, when you are born again, you are justified. Now, if you've been to this church any length of time, you know what justification is. It's the imputed righteousness of Christ given to the believer at the time of salvation. God now looks at you and views you as he views his son, pure, holy, clean. You will never be more righteous before God than the moment that you were justified. Okay? You are holy and righteous before. That's positionally. Positionally. And then we're working out phase two, which is the next one, sanctification. This is when this soul area starts to be dealt with. When we are now actually working out our salvation with fear and trembling, as it says in Philippians chapter 2. And we become a spiritual man. We can start making, see this is light. And you can start impacting your world. But you won't really impact your world until the next phase. Which is this, you living filled with the Holy Spirit. Yielded to the Holy Spirit. This only comes by us dwelling in Christ. It doesn't come by saying, okay Lord, fill me with your spirit right now, I'm ready. I'm ready, just fill me. Ooh, I had a, I had a feeling there, I had a feeling. That isn't how the filling of the Holy Spirit works. 
It comes as I yield myself to God, as I spend time with God, as I am nurtured and growing in the admonition of our Lord. It is not something automatic. It takes me yielding to God. Now, once that happens, I can make faith choices that really impact my world. I can accept God's life starts to exude out of me with my thoughts and emotions and desires. And this fruit of the spirit naturally is produced. You will not produce fruit of the spirit by trying really hard. It's a natural outcome of dwelling in Christ. It's a natural outcome of yielding to the Holy Spirit. Then your character starts to change. And what starts to happen is you notice that, oh, I starting to get more loving, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and then self-control is the last one. You actually don't have to eat the 10th cupcake. You can resist that enemy and he will flee. You can tell where my enemy is, okay? Now, again, when you're thinking about perfection, that whole area will not be yellow until glorification. That is the state of perfection, no longer temptable. While you are here, you are not perfected. You're in a process of change. But our perfection will come when we're transformed into the likeness of Christ. Now, what about demon possession? Now, this is a hot topic. This is a hot topic. What about demon possession? As we grow closer to the return of Christ, I believe that we're going to see more and more demonic stuff. The demonic realm has become more active. Now, I think that we see that today, particularly in the so-called Christian world who now is given over to become like the rest of the world. Now, what do I mean by given over? What we see today creeping into the churches is, is an agreement with the world calling evil good and good evil. And there's many places that would embrace abortion. They wouldn't say abortion. They'd say woman's right to choose. Okay. Uh, transgenderism. They'll have the kids in the libraries and that sort of thing. Folks, that's calling evil good and good evil. When we stand up against that, they look at us as being intolerant. Folks, all we're telling is the truth. We don't, we, we're not trying to cause a hassle here. Nobody wants a hassle and, and to be fighting with people. But we are obligated because actually because you really love someone. What do you do? You tell them the truth. You don't embrace their, their lie. You don't embrace them as they're on their way to hell. This will separate you from God. It is so serious that we get involved. Something I don't want to do. I don't want the conflict. But because you're salt and light and because the spirit of God lives in you, God puts it in us to please tell them the truth. That's, your, that's our job. As uncomfortable as it may be. So demon possession. This demon possession will, will culminate in the middle of the tribulation. Revelation chapter 12, verse 7 through 9. Satan in his hubris has a war in heaven. He's overcome by Michael and his angels, and he is summarily drop-kicked out of heaven down to earth. When he goes to the earth, in Revelation 12, 12, it says, Woe to the inhabitants of the earth. And what does Satan do at that point? He turns his attention on the nation of Israel to try to kill every Jew that he possibly can. Why? 
because you Bible students know that if he thwarts, the, the, the Jews have to do two things. They have to pray for the Messiah to return and admit their national sin of rejecting Messiah. They have to plead for him to return. So those two things, and, and if they don't do that, then Messiah can't come back. So his strategy has been throughout history to kill the Jews. That's why the Jewish persecution has been so, so popular throughout the world history. There's been many attempts at accomplishing this. Satan knows his time is short, and his assault will be on the true church and on the nation of Israel. We see this push towards globalism. We mentioned this just about weekly in a one-world government. But what I want you to realize is this. Those who are globalist, those who are really in a panic about climate change and, and Gaia, G-I-A, Gaia, Gaia, whatever you call it, Mother Earth, Mother Earth is suffering and Mother Earth is mad and Mother Earth is rebelling and that's why there's more tsunamis and hurricanes and tornadoes and that sort of thing. They actually believe in Mother Earth and reject the true God. And what they want to use is climate change in order to push a globalistic agenda. This thing with electric cars, folks, is part of that whole program towards a push towards save the world, save us from ourselves. Now, when you think about demon possession, Dr. Constable has this in his work. He says this, many Christians believe that Jesus' teaching here gives evidence that demons cannot possess a true believer. And then he makes this statement, that may be so. And it's almost like question mark. But demons can afflict believers greatly. Believers are no more immune against against the, Satan's attack than they are against attacks from the world and the flesh. The line between demon possession and demon affliction is a thin one that is very hard to identify. Now, I do not believe that a believer can be demon-possessed. And I will tell you why I believe that. Now, there's many good teachers that believe that they can be demonized or demon-possessed. I don't agree with that. Think about this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 4. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now, that in context is talking about false teachers at the time when John was dealing with the Gnostics. But those false teachers were in a world system that was supported by Satan. And greater is he that is in me than he that is controlling that false narrative in the world. Secondly, Believers are the temple of the Holy Spirit of the living God. God dwells within you. 2 Corinthians 6.15. And I would say this loud and clear. Satan cannot inhabit a space owned by God. You are owned by God. Thirdly, you were sealed by the Holy Spirit of promise at salvation. Ephesians 1.13. Now that sealing is for something very specific. It's for ownership. God owns you. You are his possession. It's authenticity. It's security. You belong to the living God. Satan cannot touch you. Third, number four, the Lord is faithful. Now, now you, well, listen to this one, that he will strengthen you and protect you from the evil one. That is a promise to you that is a believer. As long as you're under the cover of God, you take yourself out from the cover then you give the enemy permission in 1 John chapter 5 to grasp onto you, to haptomai, cling onto you. 
And then you can be miserable. He can't own you, but he can cause you a lot of hassle. And it can look like he owns you with that affliction being so strong. You also are protected by the armor of God. Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to take your stand against the wiles, the methodia, the schemes of the enemy. He has schemes that knows just how to hook everyone in here. Put on your armor. And finally, remember it's a mind war. He who controls the mind controls the person. We are to take captive every thought. How many thoughts? Every thought, thank you, and make it obedient to Christ. Remember, you can't control the thoughts that come into your mind. You can control what stays there. But think about this. When a thought comes in as a believer, and it's something really strange and weird, you as a believer say, it's just a thought. I'm taking that thought captive. I'm not dwelling on it. I'm casting it out. And I even have to say, in the name of Jesus, I'm not going there with it. Not going there with it. And then we are to submit, resist, and come near to God. That's James chapter 4, verse 7 and 8. Now, when you are harassed by the demonic realm, you must know that as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God resident within you, you have power to resist this enemy that is coming at you. You have the authority from God to claim that you are a child of God. I belong to the Most High God. You have no place here, demon. If you have to say that out loud, you do. Be gone in the name of Jesus. And then take the sword of the Spirit and start to slice and dice that demon. The sword of the Spirit is your offensive weapon, our memory verses that you have reserved just for this moment. Just for this moment. Demons hate the sword. So no, I do not believe that a believer can be demon-possessed, but they certainly can be harassed, and they certainly can be given over by God to Satan for the chastisement of their, of their being. As it happened in 1 Corinthians 5.5, 5, when this young man was having relationships with his stepmother. It can happen. So what are we to do? Stay close to the shepherd Use spiritual warfare principles. Our war strategy summary is the following. Submit, resist, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Take captive every thought and make it obedient to Christ and armor up. You have the armor, put it on. Don't lose parts in the house. Where's my hat or where's my helmet and all that stuff? Know where it's at. Now, and then hear this. When you're thinking about demon possession, it happens all throughout the world, folks. It's going to be happening more here. It seems that salvation of a soul is the answer to demon possession. I'm emphasizing that because what you are not seeing is binding Satan. Now, this is very controversial, but I believe that I'm on firm ground when I stand on this. Bear with me. A word on binding Satan. First of all, there's no place in Scripture where the believer is given instructions on how to bind Satan. There's nothing there. Now, Paul dealt with this, this lady who was following him with a demon spirit, and he cast that, that spirit out. But there's no specific instructions given to us on how to deal with this. There's nothing in Acts to Revelation concerning this. Luke 
Paul, James, John, or Jude, none mention binding Satan. The scripture areas where binding is mentioned is not in relationship to spiritual warfare. So binding, what does it mean? It means inhibiting. Now, well, most of you are actually listening. You're kind of actually, I was going to say listen up if this was the time to listen up, but I see your eyes. You're all kind of glued. This is a great subject for a teacher to teach on. I mean, you guys are listening. So, so binding means inhibiting. We can inhibit or bind Satan's influence in our own lives. See, what we try to do is bind him in somebody else's life. We can't. We, we bind him in our own lives by staying close to our shepherd not wandering off into the world or obeying the edicts of the flesh. Now, what I believe that we can do with Satan, this is not on your list. It was getting too long. So you have to get the tape if you want to hear it. So number one, pray that a person would come to faith and escape the trap of the devil. Now, this is actually taken out of Neil Anderson's Bondage Breakers with me tweaking a little of it. Number two, Pray that the demons will be cut off, confused, and weakened in the life of a person. Number three, pray that God will give clarity to a person to allow them to be delivered from the demonic influences. Number four, pray that God will thwart the schemes of the enemy in a person's life. We can pray for that. And number five, pray that a person will repent and believe the truth. Now, Neil Anderson emphasizes this. No one can repent for you and no one can believe for you. That is an individual thing that must be done if you want to live a victorious life. Okay, so that's a must. And I would say this. The Bible is our standard, not our traditions, not how we felt about this, not what somebody else has told me about this. Okay, you can confirm what I've said here. You just look in the Word. It has to be in line with Scripture. We must familiarize ourselves with Scripture and be able to discern the truth. The more you familiarize yourself with Scripture, the more you'll be able to do 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. Test the spirits, whether they are from Christ. Test the spirits. Now, we've learned about unclean spirits. Let's learn about the family of God. So 46 to 50, God's family is our real family. While he was still talking to the multitudes. Now notice he's talking about demon possession. The nation of Israel being in a worse state. Because they've rejected the Messiah. And in comes somebody interrupting this discussion. While he was still talking to the multitudes. Behold his mother and brother stood outside seeking to speak with him. Then one said to him look your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. And Jesus says this. Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? And he stretched out his hand towards the disciples and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, my sister, and my brother, and my mother. So, is Jesus saying here that we are to disregard our families? No, he is not. Jesus loved his mother. Jesus loved her so much that at the Feast of Canaan, his first sign, there are seven signs that, that are recorded in the book of John. His first sign was he turned water into wine. And it was before his time of being revealed as the Messiah. But because his mother asked him, he did it. 
He did it. But by this time in Jesus' ministry, his family thought that he had gone too far. He may appear a little different than the rest of the kids in the family because he was the perfect Jesus. He was the perfect kid, okay? He never did anything wrong. <laughs> but when you get all this Messiah talk, that caused them some distress. And in Mark 3.21, we see this. The context is Jesus' family. He's out of his mind. When his family heard about this, they went to him to take charge of him. You know what that word means, charge? Grab hold of him. Detain him. Stop him from what he is doing. He's embarrassing the family with all this Messiah stuff. He's out of his mind. And again, Jesus looked like, I think that Jesus looked like his other brothers, except he was a bit nicer than them. Brothers and sisters growing up. But there was a moment. There was a moment in Luke chapter 2, verse 46 and on, where we see Jesus being different than his brothers. It was the Passover. And he has at 12 years old, he has his bar mitzvah, and now he can participate in Passover. And he goes back to Jerusalem, and he's in the temple teaching and asking questions of the temple leaders. The family leaves Jesus. He's in the temple, and three days later, they realize, where's Jesus? Can't find Jesus. Where's Jesus? Anybody seen Jesus? Back of the caravan. Anybody? No, we got to go back and get Jesus. The dialogue goes like this. After three days... They found him in the temple, listening and asking questions. And then Mary says these words, Your father and I sought you anxiously. Did you, and then Jesus said, Did you not know I must be about my father's business? He's a man now. He's 12 years old. I must be about my father's business. It's no longer Joseph, stepfather. His real father. Jesus looked like James. And Jesus looked like Jude. And Jesus looked like his other two brothers and his sisters. There were six of them. Jesus' family, brothers and sisters, did not believe in him until after the resurrection. His closest family did not see him as all that special. His community did not see him as special. When he's taught in the synagogue in Nazareth, his hometown. That wasn't a very big city. Okay? A few hundred people. Everybody knew everybody. He goes into the synagogue. He teaches like no one has ever taught before. And then somebody pops up and says, Is this not the carpenter's son? The son of Mary. Isn't he just the carpenter's son? Isn't he the kid that's running around kicking the ball in the streets? He's, and he's the Messiah? That's what's going on here. Our world does not see Jesus as he is. God incarnate. And I tell you, this has been a problem for the world. They simply don't see Jesus as he is. There was a play, a Broadway play in 1971. It was called Jesus Christ Superstar. And Mary Magdalene sings a song and says, I just don't know how to love him. It's a very catchy song. And it has these words embedded in it. I don't know how to take this. I don't see why he moves me. He's a man. He's just a man. Why is he moving me this way? Now, to our world, loud and clear, who looks at Jesus as being a man, a prophet, a great teacher. Remember, all world religions embrace him and think favorably of Jesus. 
but they don't say he's God. They don't say he's their savior. To our world, loud and clear, we say he is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is King of Kings. He is Lord of Lords. He is my Savior, my Lord, my Redeemer. He is my Sovereign. He is my God. And hear this, He is my friend. Jesus said, No greater love has a man for this, in John 15, 13, to lay down his life for his friends. Jesus laid down his life for you. You are a friend of Jesus. The moment you said yes to Jesus. To his disciples in John 15, 15, he says, I no longer call you servants, but friends. Friends. To the multitudes, he says, look, look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside seeking to speak with you. Jesus, who is my mother and my brother? Stanley Toussaint, in his work, Behold the King, says this. The king is taking this opportunity to instruct his listeners concerning the nature of one's relationship to the Messiah. Participation in the Messianic kingdom is not merely based upon claim to be in Abraham's family. It's contingent upon a spiritual relationship with Christ. It's the only way in. In a real sense, our mothers and brothers are the family of God. The family of God will be living with forever. And aren't you thrilled to know that each one of us will be changed? You're not going to have to live with this for eternity. Point you at yourself. And I'm not going to have to live with this for eternity, and neither are you. We're going to be perfected. That's the only way that we can get along and not have jealousy and anger and all those things in eternity is by being glorified. Glorified. No more arguments. No more fights. No more evidence of being here when we're there. Some closing thoughts. I want you to focus on verse 50 for just a second. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother, sister, and mother. Now, do you see this? This is very important. God is into family. I'm not talking about dysfunctional families like we're all in, okay? He's in the families. God invites all of us to be part of his family, the only functional family in existence. But to be part of his family, it says we must do the will of my father. What is the will of father? John 6:40. My Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life, and I will raise Him up in the last day. The only, only, only way to be in this amazing, incredible family is through the new birth. You must be born again, as it says in John 3.3. 3. Now, I want you to think about something. I want you to think about God. I want you to think about the vastness of God. I want you to think about the word transcendent. God is transcends his creation. He is outside of his creation. God is the always was person. He never was created. He always existed. Now, in thinking about that, he is transcendent. He is loving. He is kind. He is giving. He is spaceless, timeless, immaterial, all-powerful, personal, and biggest thing, relational. This God that is so amazing wants to have a relationship with someone like me. All the me's here. 
me, like us. There's something about God that he desires to share forever with us. One so great would want to spend forever with one like us. It is unfathomable to me. Unfathomable to me. Forever we'll be in the divine presence of God. No matter where we are assigned in God's kingdom. Look, we're going to be in a millennial kingdom. It's going to be on earth. We get into eternity. No one knows what that's like. Okay? We live in three dimensions right now. Three dimensions right now. Height, length, width. Some, some people say depth and that sort of thing. Some, some physicists believe there's 11 dimensions. That we are here, but these dimensions are very close. They're right here with us. If you listen to Chuck Missler, it gets really weird. They're right here with us. A.W. Tozer, no matter where you're assigned in God's creation, the farthest galaxy, whatever dimension, God is there. We can know with assuredly that God is there. Tozer says this and is about the universal presence of God. Wherever we are, God is here. There is no place, there can be no place where he is not. Ten million intelligences standing at many points in space can be separated by incomprehensible distances. Can each one say with equal truth, God is there. When you go to the Creation Museum and you're sitting in that planetarium and you're watching the vastness of this solar system and all the solar systems that are out there, God, 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 his presence is as strong at any one place as any other place. No point is nearer to God than any other point. It's exactly as near to God from any place as it is from any other place. No one is a mere distance any further from or nearer to God than any other person. And all I can say is incredible, amazing, astounding. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. A statement of fact. Not matter. There wasn't matter in the beginning. There wasn't that mind or thought in the beginning. They're not the laws governing the universe in the beginning. No, there was God. God. And listen to this. When you listen to apologists, they use this language. Follow this closely. God is the uncaused cause of matter. What does that uncaused mean? Always existed. No beginning, no end. The uncaused cause of matter, law, mind, and law. God caused the beginning as we know it. King David had a grasp of this concept on the vastness of God. And he says in Psalm 139, 7 through 10, these words. He had it. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, the highest heavens... Now, look at you get in Israel, it's clear. Okay? The sky is clear. It's like going out to Montana. And you look up at the stars, and it's just like one big sheet of stars. That's what he's talking about. <laughs> if I go to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there, the deepest parts of the earth. If I rise on the wings of the dawn and settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. There is no place that you can go that God is not there. Look, you get abandoned in some nursing home with COVID. The most tragedy of tragedies when family can't be there. You remember something. God 
is there with you. You're in some shipwreck out in the middle of an ocean where you can't see the beginning from the end of that water. You think about this. God is with you. There is no place that God is not. There is no, nothing too far from him. Jesus says to each one of us who believe in him, we are family. That's the one we're in family with. You are my brother, my sister, my family. Before the world began, Jesus chose to us to live with him forever. Forever. Amazing. Indescribable. There was a song written by Laura Story, Indescribable. It's popularized by Chris Tomlin. And it has some of these words in it. From the highest of heights to the depths of the sea. Creation revealing your majesty. From the colors of fall to the fragrance of spring. Every creature unique in the song that it sings. All exclaiming, you know it. Indescribable, uncontainable. You place the stars in the sky and you call them by name. You are amazing, God. He is amazing. You, and he is so amazing. He's inscribed your name on the palms of his hands. He knows you intimately. He is close to you. Our amazing God wants you to be in his family. I can't, I, I don't know, but that is amazing to me. Selah. Let's pause and ponder what we've just heard. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, that you created the heavens and the earth. You created the stars. You created the vastness of the solar system. You created the vastness all the way down to the micro world that inhabits our beings, the cell levels, the, the intricacies of, of the human body, the intricacies of your creation, all the way down to these cells and minute things, all controlled by you, all organized by you, everything held in place by you. You are amazing God and your vastness and your greatness. You want me to be in your family. And all I can say is thank you. Thank you, Father, for sending your son to die for us that we who believe can live forever with you, our amazing, indescribable God. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.